Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, Episode 8. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at the violin sonatas of Opus 12. All three were composed between 1797 and 1798, and, while historians and critics have not always been generous with their praise of these works, they represent an interesting, reasonably fresh perspective on what violin sonatas were all about in the late 18th century. We're going to focus on the first two of these and begin with the sonata in D major, opus 12, number 1. It's a very attractive work, bursting with vitality and playfulness. The first movement, Allegro con Brio and In Common Time, announces its presence with a conventional fanfare theme, played in octaves by piano and violin, that extends the tonic triad into the fifth bar. At that point, a somewhat more distinctive thematic element is introduced in the violin, one featuring large leaps, octaves and sevenths, followed by a long, gradually descending line against chords and mostly arpeggio patterns in the piano. Harmonic support to this point has been conservative, basically alternating tonic and dominant chords, but we do encounter a little chromaticism as we proceed in the form of a secondary dominant seventh chord that temporarily directs us toward the subdominant as we approach the end of the final phrase. This then passes briefly to a supertonic seventh chord, the seventh chord built on the second scale degree, but an authoritative, although rather quiet, cadence quickly returns us to tonic as the phrase comes to an end. At that point, the eight-bar theme is taken up by the piano, accompanied by a mostly stepwise flow of eighth notes in the violin. The piano presents a more ornamented and dramatic variation, featuring leaps to accented high notes and tumbling eighth note triplets. Whereas the violin's version of the theme began quietly and crescendoed gradually, the piano's is more aggressive from the beginning, although it still has to compete with the violin's countermelody for the listener's interest. After introducing a new and colorful chromatic chord, the piano's more athletic version of the theme eventually comes to a stop on the dominant, at which point a new motive is introduced, a swirling series of 16th notes topped off by an ascending leap, heard first in the piano, but immediately echoed by the violin. This motive is heard four more times, interspersed with 16th note piano arpeggios, which basically alternate between dominant and tonic chords, and remind us of the opening fanfare-like motive. All of this serves as a transition of sorts to the modulatory transition, and is capped off by a thundering fortissimo descending scale played in tenths by violin and piano. When the modulatory transition finally arrives, it begins with a surprisingly quiet cadence on tonic, but eventually crescendos up to fortissimo and a single multiple stop in the violin, followed by a new version of those same swirling 16th note passages we just encountered. Here's an excerpt beginning where the piano's more athletic variation takes center stage against winding scale passages from the violin, leading into that transitional passage 
and then the modulatory transition itself, where, after more swirling 16th note passages, violin and piano take turns delivering a series of powerful descending 16th note lines until the modulation to the dominant is on the verge of consummation, which they signal at the last second by an equally powerful ascending line in 16th notes, marked by accented sforzandi, which charges up the E major scale. But is the modulation really complete at this point? We seem suspended on the dominant of the new key when the second subject makes its tentative appearance high in the piano's range. The new melodic idea we just heard starts on the fifth of the A major scale and proceeds with a series of descending four-note scale fragments in eighth notes, each one starting a step lower. This idea, although a perfectly elegant one, does not really represent a confirmation of the new key of A major, since, after all, we have yet to hear a cadence in the new key. In fact, the four-bar phrase you just heard pauses not on the new tonic of A major, but on D major. But now the violin begins to enter with a variant of this new phrase and we would have every reason to expect that the matter will be cleared up quickly. But it is not cleared up, at least not right away, because the violin's version of the phrase actually enters over a B minor chord, casting a new shadow on the first two bars of the phrase. But by the third and fourth bars of the violin statement, things once again become perfectly clear as the piano enters beneath the violin to, at last, set up a solid cadence on A major. Now, I'm overstating the novelty of this situation a little to make the point that Beethoven is doing something a little different than the norm here. Our puzzlement as to the lack of confirmation of the new key of A major would have been brief at most. All of this happens quickly enough that we wouldn't really have time to be bothered by the lack of the tonic chord in the new key. And besides, we've seen a previous example where the second subject in a sonata form enters on the dominant and takes its time before finally settling down to the new tonic. But it's still important, I think, to take note of the fact that Beethoven, even at this point, was perfectly happy to toy with his listeners' expectations as to musical continuity in a multitude of ways. Okay, back to the second subject itself. Now that we're securely in the new key of the dominant, the piano takes over again, with a more active triplet-based variant played against the violin counter-melody in quarter notes, moving in a series of descending thirds with sforzando accents on the offbeats. 
The violin then takes up that triplet variation a step higher, while the piano reverts to the counter melody just heard in the violin, now down an octave. The violin's version is cut short, however, skittering down the scale to a lower tonic A to lead us to the closing section. The closing section begins quietly with arpeggios in both hands of the piano, and after a measure and a half, the violin enters with another idea, marked dolce, which begins with an octave leap to a sustained tone, which then swells with a crescendo into a somewhat sentimental-sounding little phrase with fluctuating chromatic chords beneath it. But as the closing section continues, it's the octave leap idea, tied to a quickly descending flurry of sixteenth notes, that actually dominates, not the rather poignant lyrical phrase first heard. That octave leap motive is tossed back and forth between violin and piano as we move first toward A minor and then, more surprisingly, toward F major, where some new primarily descending and rather quiet motives are introduced in both violin and piano. We then pause for a while, also unexpectedly, on a rather ambiguous B minor chord but then a variant of some of the earlier motives reappear, and it becomes clear that the B minor chord was just a placeholder. We move to the dominant of A major, sit there for four measures, while piano and later violin provide sustained trills to build up a sense of expectation, and then after a descending staccato scale in the piano left hand, we land once again on A major for the start of the codetta. Here is the closing section, ending at the start of the codetta. The codetta begins with bold half-note chords in violin and piano, rendered fortissimo, but from that point on relies mostly on sixteenth-note arpeggios in the piano and multiple-stop violin offbeats. Soon the broken chords turn to swirling scale lines, exchanged back and forth between the two instruments, with a sweeping, ascending fortissimo scale line in sixteenth notes propelling us into the final cadence that ends the exposition. Here's an excerpt from the start of the codetta to that point. After the solid cadence on A major to end the exposition, which you just heard, the development section immediately sidesteps it and begins in F major, 
quietly presenting the opening chords of the Codetta in that key. But after a pair of more robust dominant seventh chords, the violin answering in multiple stops, Beethoven switches gears and embraces the second part of the first subject, the more expansive lyrical theme that had entered after the opening fanfare-like measures. This is tossed back and forth between violin and piano right hand against a flow of eighth notes in the left, moving first in the direction of B-flat major and then G minor. It's not the most engrossing of development sections to this point, but Beethoven does make a nifty little chromatic modulation from G minor to A major, where he reintroduces a quieter and gentler version of the triadic fanfare motive from the opening bars of the movement. This idea is carried through in the piano for a number of measures, against which the violin provides a mostly arpeggio-based countermelody, also beginning softly but crescendoing passionately for a measure before decrescendoing back down again in consort with the piano. Soon the violin's line has become more sinuous and chromatic, and the piano has added some chromatic coloring of its own. After one final dynamic surge, at which point it has become clear that the A major chord is really a dominant seventh, just waiting to return us to the original tonic of D major, we arrive triumphantly at the recapitulation. The recapitulation, of which you just heard the opening, is mostly unremarkable. The various themes appear in their proper order and, for the most part, in the expected keys, although the closing section once again engages in some mildly exotic tonal wandering. But we're securely back in the original tonic of D major by the time we get to the chords that had signaled the beginning of the codetta. In his two early cello sonatas, Beethoven had extended the recapitulation with more or less independent and lengthy coda sections, but he apparently sees no need for such things here, and the original codetta takes us to the end of the movement with some rousing scale passages and full-bodied chords. The middle movement of the sonata in A major is a theme in variations in 2-4 meter and marked andante con moto. The theme, which is subjected to four variations, is a pleasant if unremarkable one. It begins in the piano by arpeggiating up and down the tonic triad, starting on the fifth of the chord, leaping up to the seventh of a dominant seventh chord, and arpeggiating back down to tonic, again simple, although sonorous, block chords in the left hand. The next two bars amount to an harmonically more active version of the first two, 
with the highlight again being the leap up to the seventh. The next four-bar phrase, which ends on the dominant, contains the theme's most distinctive gesture, a strong, chromatically inflected ascending line peaking with a dramatic lower neighbor dissonance, followed by a gradual descent. The two phrases are then repeated, with the violin taking the lead and the piano providing harmonic support. The second half of this binary theme references some of the melodic motives from the first half, but is more interesting harmonically, incorporating multiple secondary dominant chords and an even more effective use of non-harmonic tones. The second eight measures are a varied repeat of the previous eight, with the violin taking the lead, and the high point once again being an expressive non-harmonic tone in the fourth bar. The first variation is dominated by the piano with harmonic support, including some rather delicate little offbeat figures contributed by the violin. It shows an overall increase in rhythmic activity as it proceeds, including some new dotted eighth sixteenth note figures, and in the second half, a series of thirty-second note arpeggios and scalar swirls from the piano, along with a few lyrical touches from the violin at the expressive climaxes. Decorative scale passages and triadic motives abound, following the general harmonic plan of the original, but ignoring for the most part the overall contour of the original theme.
In the second variation, the 32nd note activity has also been picked up by the violin, which combines various scale-based patterns with some new repeated note patterns. Characteristics of the original theme are obviously still in evidence here, including the distinctive ascending line of the original theme, which is reflected clearly in the first half of this variation, although the violin ornaments the original line heavily. The second half of the variation continues the high level of embellishment from both piano and violin, although the latter contributes some distinctive new motives as well. True to expectations, the third minor key variation, which changes mood dramatically, is a dynamic one, characterized by abrupt contrasts in dynamics, sforzando accents, powerful crescendos, cross rhythms in the piano, most notably 32nd note arpeggios in the left hand against cascading 16th note triplets in the right, and bold triple stops in the violin. The first half begins with the violin quoting the opening bar of the theme in A minor, and it does so again in bar 3 up a third. But there are a few other references to the original theme in the first eight bars. Harmonically, we begin moving towards C major already in measure 3, but we're back securely in A minor by the end of the first eight bar section. In the next eight measures, the roles are reversed. The second half of the variation appears to begin in A major, but it's just a mirage. The chord quickly shows itself to be tonicizing D minor, and we quickly find ourselves back in A minor. The triadic motor from the opening bar of the original theme shows up again and again in multiple guises, while the violin finds itself repeating staccato triplets against it. It's a variation which shows a lot of energy and a fair amount of passion, even if that passion is of a more or less conventional type.
The fourth variation, returning to A major, is a particularly delicate one. It introduces a new gently syncopated accompaniment pattern in the piano, while the violin contributes a series of dulce melodic fragments. Eventually, another strong ascending melodic line emerges in the violin, tying it back securely to the original theme. The variation itself ends with a fermata on D major, clearly not the conclusion of the movement, and ushers in a brief but effective coda. The coda is a fragile entity that provides a final, almost nostalgic glance back at the opening measures of the theme before ending quietly. We'll move on now to the finale, which is a rondo in 6-8, marked allegro, and sporting a typically jaunty refrain theme, eight bars long in its initial presentation, broken into two symmetrical phrases. A series of ascending leaps are probably its most notable feature. It opens with an ascending leap of a sixth in the first bar, and another large leap in the second, this time to an accented dissonance on a weak beat. These two ascending leaps are balanced with a descending leap of a fifth, also to an accented weak beat note in measure four. But in measure six, we hear the largest leap of all, an ascending tenth, once again to an accented weak beat. Here's a simplified example, piano right hand only, leaving out the stepwise countermelody in the left hand, which actually adds substantially to the interest of the theme. After the eight-measure piano version of the theme, the violin takes it over, note for note as the piano accompaniment beneath it thickens somewhat. The refrain theme ends back on the tonic chord and is immediately followed by the transition to the first episode. Just as in a sonata form, the transition in a rondo movement might be short, relatively uninteresting, and do little more than accomplish its mission, that is, firmly establish the key of the dominant. But the transition might also be somewhat longer and more elaborate, and that's the case for this transition. First of all, it's 22 measures long longer than the refrain theme. Second, and this is not surprising, it's more complex tonally. It doesn't simply modulate directly from the key of the tonic to the key of the dominant. It stops off at some other key areas along the way and does so in an interesting fashion. The first episode is brief, eight bars long, relying heavily on descending triads and octave leaps, and quite simple harmonically, based only on supertonic, dominant, and tonic chords. The episode is followed by a peculiar little four-bar retransition that includes a little sentimental chromaticism and a fermata. Then we're back at the refrain. 
The refrain begins normally enough with the melody in the piano, but when the violin joins in, the key shifts to D minor. After just four bars, a new idea is introduced, with ascending scale patterns alternating with octave leaps. The key soon tilts toward F major, and later even F minor, before settling back into F major, with an actual change in the key signature, for the introduction of the second episode. The second episode is a fairly bland one, at least initially. After eight bars, the violin states the theme up a step, beginning in G minor, and we've moved to B-flat major by the time the piano has taken up the theme again for a more active variant of it. But by the end of the statement, increasingly varied from the original, the theme has migrated cleverly to D minor. And Beethoven is just getting started. New motives are gradually introduced as we blend into a retransition. But this retransition is quite a bit more elaborate than the first we heard, moving through A major and A minor and introducing a subtle motivic interplay between violin and piano worthy of Beethoven's best early development sections. Eventually, though, the clever little transition plays itself out, the key signature changes back to D major, and we are brought back to the refrain. There's not much new in this version of the refrain, nor in the transition that follows it, although this time we never really leave the tonic key of D major. Episode 3, or the B prime in an A, B, A, C, A, B prime form, is, as expected, a variant of the first episode, now appearing in D major. The retransition, probably headed back to the refrain theme for the final time, is, however, severely modified and extended, and introduces some strong new elements, including a chromatically descending bass line that unfolds over several measures. The final statement of the refrain theme is not complete, and it appears in what is tantamount to a coda. It returns, surprisingly, in E-flat major at first, and is quickly transformed into a development of the appoggiatura motive originally appearing in measure two. Back in A major, the first bar of episode 2 is also quoted, and receives some play in both violin and piano. Beethoven toys with a little tonal ambiguity in the final measures, 
created by the protracted use of an Italian sixth chord. But everything is clarified nicely in the last couple of measures, and the movement ends with a crescendo and a dramatically plunging scale line in the piano. Here is my last excerpt from the beginning of the final refrain theme to the conclusion of the movement. This little rondo, in some respects, represents the highlight of Beethoven's first violin sonata, and it's perhaps the least likely features of the movement, the transitions between the refrain and the various episodes, that are the most compelling. Here Beethoven shows that even in what is considered to be a fairly minor work among the early chamber works, he makes the effort to insert some unusually attractive ideas even into those parts of a rondo form that are more likely to come across as generic and merely formal. Beethoven dedicated all three of his first published violin sonatas to Antonio Salieri, one of Vienna's most notable composers. Beethoven does seem to have consulted the older composer informally on various occasions, and for a short period at least appeared to take formal lessons with him. It's difficult to know if Beethoven actually admired Salieri's music, although he did compose a set of variations on a duet from one of Salieri's operas. But this may have been more of a career maneuver than an authentic act of admiration. Beethoven knew Salieri to be particularly influential in the world of opera, and there's little doubt that Beethoven hoped that one day his talents would find expression in that medium. But I don't want to be too cynical about Beethoven's motivations here. Their personal relationship had its ups and downs, but Salieri was to assist Beethoven more than once over the years. The first movement of Beethoven's second violin sonata, Opus 12, No. 2, in A major, 6-8 time, and marked Allegro Vivace, begins with a witty tune in a style that within a few years might have been thought of as Rossinian, rhythmically catchy and beguiling in its simplicity. The theme, presented first by the piano, lurches gaily down the tonic triad for four bars, each chord tone decorated by its lower neighbor, while the violin provides a steady chordal accompaniment of eighth notes. The melody moves down the dominant seventh chord for the next four bars, this time ornamented by upper neighbor tones. After some energetic sixteenth note passage work provides a link to a nifty little cadence figure, we return to the tonic. The next four bars shift the passage work to the violin, doubled in thirds by the piano, and the cadential motive is repeated. The 
The entire thematic statement begins to repeat. The melodic material is split between violin and piano, but the passage is soon transformed into a modulatory transition, which concludes not in the expected key of the dominant, A major, but its relative minor, F-sharp minor. Here, a simple but colorful little tune is introduced, starting on the fifth of the scale and proceeding up the melodic minor form of that scale. Here's an excerpt starting with the first subject being handed to the violin, the modulatory transition, which soon becomes the colorful second subject. The shift from F-sharp minor up to G major in the fourth measure is an especially attractive feature, and the immediate repetition of that measure is particularly evocative of Rossini's later style. The six-measure passage is then repeated in the piano, starting in G major but moving quickly to E minor. This time the bump is up to F major, and it's just as effective the second time around. The second subject finally begins to head for E major, the key of the dominant, and the normal key for a second subject. And shortly thereafter, a clever little closing section motive is introduced. This new motive is bandied back and forth between violin and piano, with regular offbeat sforzandi adding to the rhythmic impetus. But just when this dynamic interplay is at its liveliest, a bar of silence cuts off the closing section in midstream. After that abrupt cutoff on a diminished seventh chord, there is some attempt to get the action going again with the introduction of some rhythmically distinctive sixteenth note figures played over more diminished seventh chords. But the volume is quite subdued at this point and soon gets even quieter. But then the diminished seventh chords resolve into a burst of energy from the piano as it charges up the scale with a series of sweeping, crescendoing sixteenth notes. That takes us back to E major where we started and we might well expect that that sweeping scale line will mark the end of the closing section and end the entire exposition. But it does not. What follows is a particularly dark, almost ominous codetta theme, played quietly in unison and octaves by piano and violin. Although this new theme is sequenced around a bit and the piano adds a bit of harmony beneath it, it still remains somewhat vague tonally. But the passage eventually grows louder and more confident and at the last second gives way to a little Rossinian cheerfulness as the exposition finally comes to a close. Still, there is no question that this is one of Beethoven's strangest codettas, and it is almost impossible to avoid the feeling that the rapid switches in mood and implied drama is more tongue-in-cheek than anything else. Here is that puzzling codetta beginning right after the dramatic cutoff you heard earlier. Mm -hmm. 
The development section is a fairly conventional one. There is a little bit of a jolt when the exposition ends in E major and the development section starts in C major, but it soon settles down into a somewhat predictable pattern of tossing about motives from the first subject. We do manage a modulation to the fairly remote key of F major before almost immediately turning around and heading back to A major. But this section is short and on the whole not particularly eventful. The recapitulation is a bit more interesting, if for no other reason than that themes return in some unpredictable keys. But the only real novelty is the addition of a coda, which occurs after the original codetta returns, this time in the key of A major, naturally. The new coda focuses on yet another development of the stuttering motives from the first subject, and we soon encounter a staggering of the eighth note pattern between the right and left hands of the piano that results in some clever rhythmic displacements. This is followed by an abridged return of the first subject in its original form and a somewhat coquettish but surprisingly understated conclusion. The middle movement in A minor 2-4 meter and marked Andante Piotosto Allegretto is something of an enigma. There is a certain solemn dignity to the whole affair, and the opening theme is certainly an attractive one, full of, as Watson puts it, of the sort of romantic longing that would be later associated with Schubert. But there is little or no development of it, or of any other distinctive idea, and no consistent momentum is ever established. Still, the opening eight bars are quite compelling and seem to hold great promise. The violin takes up the melody for the next eight bars, and the entire section ends on the tonic. A phrase modulation brings us immediately to C major, and a new melody in the piano, really just a motivic fragment, a dotted rhythm repetition of three notes from E down to C, is introduced. Following this brief foray into the relative major key, enlivened with a few strong beats sforzandi, we immediately return to A minor with a free variant of the C major motive. The violin then takes its turn with the new theme, and we cadence again on A minor before moving on to a new section in F major. Here's an excerpt from the entrance of the violin through to that last cadence in A minor.
So far, so good. But the new section is not a particularly inspired one, consisting mostly of ascending scale passages heard first in the violin and then imitated in the piano. The eight-bar section cadences on C major, and then the whole process begins again, with the piano taking the lead. This gives way to another eight-bar section based on a descending four-note scale motive traded back and forth between piano and violin, and a circle of fifths harmonic progression that eventually cadences back in F major. This new section is likewise repeated, the violin now taking the lead. I'm only going to play a little bit of this section. After a brief modulatory extension of the previous section, we return to A minor and the initial theme, now embellished with an effective new violin countermelody. But once again, as you heard in my excerpt, the rather effective A minor theme gives way to the somewhat less effective melodic ideas accompanying the switch to C major, although some offbeat sforzandi and syncopated interlocking patterns between the violin and piano give this section more interest than in its initial appearance. The key of C major soon surrenders to A minor, and the phrase accompanying the transformation is repeated and varied several times. A somewhat halting version of the opening theme then reappears, as does the middle section, originally in F major but now in A minor, and which serves as a short coda that brings the movement to a quiet close. This movement is not without an impressive aura of melancholy, at least when the first theme or its echoes are present, but it is still difficult not to conclude that this slow movement is one that missed its opportunities to fulfill its potential. The finale is another rondo, 
It's an attractive movement with interesting themes and a pleasing architecture, smoothly flowing and logical, but not without surprises. It's in A major 3-4 time, and as the designation Allegro Piacevole suggests, it's a relatively peaceful movement, somewhat less rambunctious than the earlier rondo we looked at. The opening theme begins on an upbeat tied across the measure to beat one, and ties across strong beats turn out to be one of the theme's most important characteristics. The melody, starting on the fifth in the piano and thinly accompanied by left-hand chords, moves gently up the A major triad before gradually descending by step. As the first phrase settles down on the dominant, the second with the melody now reinforced with block chords somewhat unexpectedly goes to B minor. The violin enters on the next phrase, and the initial melodic line repeats on the subdominant. The phrase that follows, mostly stepwise and split between the right and left hands, finally returns the key to the tonic. We stay in A major as the first phrase is repeated an octave higher in the piano with a simple but effective violin countermelody. Then a more forceful variant of the second phrase is heard again, once more in B minor. Then the third phrase comes back, again on the subdominant, the violin singing the melody an octave higher as well. Finally, a simple but elegant little cadential motive returns the key to A major as the refrain ends quietly. The transition to the first episode begins robustly with an ascending A major triad covering two octaves. Piano and violin both present interlocking motives vaguely related to the little cadential motive that concluded the refrain, and those, in combination with the rising arpeggio figures enlivened by Sforzandi accents, makes for a fine transition that arrives at the new key of E major about halfway through the process but which then veers to E minor only in the last five measures. The first episode is a rather restrained one the piano and violin doubling a relatively slow-moving but expressively lyrical melody over eighth-note arpeggios in the piano left hand. The melody begins its migration to the new key of G major already by the fourth measure, but it doesn't stay there long. The tune is repeated down a third, with the violin down an octave, and the piano up an octave from its original configuration, starting in C major, but moving quickly toward E major, the correct key, for the first episode in a rondo in A major. The last two bars are extended to set up a more convincing cadence, and after that, we launch into the re-transition, based on ascending eighth note arpeggios similar to those found in the transition. Tagged onto these is a coy little four-bar preparation for the return of the refrain that literally fades into nothingness before the refrain theme is reintroduced. Thank you. 
The refrain melody, appearing intact and with no major surprises, yields to a brief transition based on the cadential motive referred to earlier, and the second episode appears in D major. The first part of this new theme resembles the first episode theme in style, but it's a little more stable harmonically, although it does make use of some secondary dominant chords to urge the momentum forward. The piano accompaniment is also similar to that found in the first episode, although the left hand provides some surprising sforzandi against the dolce violin line and a little melodic movement against the sustained tones in the melody. When the piano later picks up the main melody in octaves, the violin provides an even more vigorous countermelody. The second part of the theme largely repeats the first part melodically, but goes farther afield tonally, at least temporarily, with a quick tonicization of E minor. Eventually, the theme is played out with repetitions of the quarter note motive from bar two, and we encounter what first appears to be a recurrence of the refrain melody in D minor, swelling up to a dynamic peak on the dominant chord. But it's just a bluff. What we've really encountered is a developmental extension of the previous episode. The cadential motor from the refrain has an important role to play here as well, quieting the music and providing some space before the first four bars of the refrain occur again, this time in F major. Soon, however, few traces of the refrain melody remain, and we get a rather vigorous development of the cadential motive based on the last two bars only. This eventually heads toward E minor, and we get a reintroduction of the ascending arpeggios that characterized the first transition and retransition. And these, along with a series of repeated staccato quarter notes, finally take us back to A major and the real refrain. The refrain is dealt with in standard fashion, followed by the original transition. 
the first episode returns, varied as usual by its new key of A minor, among other things. As in its initial appearance, the key center migrates somewhat, first to C major, and then through a number of quick tonicizations before finally heading toward A major. The retransition resembles the earlier ones, with a couple of silent measures again playing an important role in preparing for the return of the refrain. The final refrain is, not surprisingly, incomplete, and introduces new chromatic elements, finally merging into a brief coda that features glimpses of the ascending eighth note triplets from the first transition. While the coda doesn't provide any new insights into the thematic material it incorporates, it keeps the rhythmic interest up with its casual cross rhythms and rounds off the movement and the entire sonata smoothly, if undramatically. The third sonata for violin and piano in E-flat major is a substantial work, and I'd like to draw particular attention to the slow movement, for which the key shifts to C major, and which is marked adagio con molta espressione. It's a remarkable movement, often noble, occasionally coquettish, and at times exhaustingly dramatic, one of the great slow movements among the early works. One final point about the first three violin and piano sonatas. Earlier 18th century sonatas for violin and piano were frequently characterized more as piano sonatas with violin accompaniment, the implication being that the violinist played very much a subsidiary role. Is that true of Beethoven's first three violin sonatas? At times, the two instruments do seem to function as equal partners, but at other times, especially in the first part of each movement, the piano still seems to dominate. Often the piano presents the thematic material first, and the violin simply follows suit. That's certainly not true all of the time, and when the critics reference these sonatas with barely a mention of the violin, it no doubt perturbed Beethoven greatly. Still, these violin sonatas, despite some very attractive and colorful thematic ideas, were not at this point what they would later become in terms of the equality of the instruments. That's all for this episode. In the next, we'll look at Beethoven's famous piano sonata number no. 8 in C minor, nicknamed The Pathétique, composed in 1797 and 1798.